on today's episode of Relationships Matter, a healthcare perspective. We are going to talk about why compensation just isn't enough. So my name is Anita J. Clark. I am the nurse incubator. I do mentor and grow young nurses um, in the healthcare industry. Our goal is to give them the tools that they need so that they can be successful personally, professionally, and academically. So today we're going to jump right into it to understand why compensation just isn't enough. Right now we're in a pandemic and what we see is a bunch of lucrative contracts that are attractive to nurses, right? They are attractive because the money is more than we've seen in such a long time. And as far as, you know, pay goes, we got into this industry for multiple reasons, but um, pay was mm, slightly a factor, right? Because we knew that nurses make good money, right? But what happens when those contracts outweigh the characteristics or the client or the climate of the environment, right? So I'm going to give you an example. In my last facility, um, we brought on an intensivist group because, you know, we had hospital medicine doctors that actually ran the medical um the med search floor, and then also the ICU. Our patients, from an ICU perspective, weren't critical um, to the point where they needed a higher level of care, and our hospitalists could actually manage the flow of you know these patients' care. When COVID came to us, right, there was a whole new perspective. Um, We had more patients that were intubated, they were on the ventilator, and there were medications that, um, unbeknownst to some of the hospitalists, they, they needed help managing, right? So their goal was to actually bring on a pulmonologist because what you see with COVID, of course, everything is respiratory. So bringing on a pulmonologist, somebody who specializes in um, lung care was their ideal. Well, what they brought on instead was an intensivist group that specialized in critical care, right? That was their focus. Of course, they had um, knowledge and experience in pulmonology, but they also had a critical care component, which was even more impactful um, to our setting, regardless of what the intent was to bring them on. So we bring them on, you know, of course, the C-suite meets with them to go over, you know, financial compensation, establish a contract, you know, the rules and the regulations, the things like that. Then I sit down with the um, head intensivist and we discuss... uh, the nursing role, how this looks like with the doctor-patient relationship. How can we um, work together in an efficient manner and actually achieve the goal that we're trying to achieve? And it was an awesome, awesome, awesome experience, right? Um, Just sitting down and talking to doctors that looked at you 
with a level of respect, right? They talked to you and communicated to you like you were the professional that you were. And in certain states, you don't always get that as your actual um, reaction. In some states, doctors look at you as if you're less than and it leads to a lot of performance issues within, you know, some organizations, because if your doctor is always belittling you or speaking down to you, it's kind of hard to feel like you're this competent, proficient person because you're never, you know, pleasing to them or that you, you can't do what they're asking of you. And so it you'd question yourself a lot, right? And that's what I've seen in my nurses a lot. But moving forward. So when it came to the hospital list, um, there was a little bit of an ego issue uh, because they felt like they had been at the facility for a while and they knew how to care for this patient population. Well, when the COVID patients started coming in and uh, the ventilators started rolling and you started with um, paralytics and sedation, and then you had to look at, you know, titrating for blood pressure and then patients came in and they were diabetic. So some had to be on an insulin drip. Um, and there was, you know, there was just such a huge course of medication that went along with each and every one of these patients, right? A patient can be on six to 10 medications that you could hang within a eight to 10 hour period. You know, one patient, I intubated her and she was on, by the end of my shift, she was on about eight drips and it took me all 12 hours just to care for that patient alone because every time I came back, the intensivist was putting in a new order, right? We already had to get her calmed down, sedated, and then paralyzed. And then once we did that, we had to monitor her blood pressure because once you're sedated, your blood pressure drops. And it's just, you know, a cascade of things that go on in the critical care setting. Well, the intensivists did a great job with communicating with the nurses. They did a great job of educating and teaching every step of the way, which for an inexperienced nurse or for a nurse that's even proficient, understanding what is actually going on with your patient is life-changing, right? And having a doctor walk you through and saying, hey, this presentation means this, and this is why we're adding this medication, right? Right. And so you're able, once you recognize those symptoms later and you see it in your next patient, you're able to understand what the next course of treatment will be. Okay. So as time went on, you know, we started to see a little bit of discourse. Okay. So this patient will come in. Um, so who does the patient go to? Does it go to the intensivist or does it go to the actual hospitalist? Okay. So the hospitalist was responsible for admitting every single patient that came into the ICU, right? Because they they had boots on the ground 
and the intensivist was via telehealth. So they had boots on the ground as hospitalists so they could go in, they could access the patient and then put in the orders. Well, then they would do a consult and the intensivist will call. You bring that iPad in the room. If the patient was conscious, they would talk to the patient. If not, they would do a head to toe ask the nurse a bunch of questions about regarding the assessment and then move on. Right. Um, then they will put in orders. Do you need anything? Okay. If you do, your patient starts to, um, show any changes, call me back. Oh, cool. No problem. So that's how I went until the discord came in where, um, some patients there were, you know, of a simpler nature, but they were still ICU status. They were supposed to go to the intensivist. Anybody that was ICU status was technically supposed to go to the intensivist um, after being seen by the hospitalist. Well, of course, when you do financial contracts and when you do, um, when you work in a smaller facility, people always discuss pay, right? Pay is something that all organizations tell you that you should not discuss. And the reason why you should not discuss it is because John is probably making more than Sally. Sally's probably making more than Shauna. Shauna's probably making more than Chaniqua, right? We know that this is part of our organization culture and we know that you know, there is not an accurate scale base based on skills all the time. Well, we won't go there today. We'll save that conversation for another day. But with the hospitalists knowing how much the intensivists were getting paid for the amount of work that they were actually doing, that's when the discourse came in, right? So they see two to four patients and I have 15 patients 15 to 30 actually on my team that I need to see. They're making X amount of dollars. I'm making this, right? That's why we say that compensation isn't enough because money can only go so far when it comes time to attracting, investing, and retaining your staff, right? When you want to attract someone, of course, that is a carrot that they're going to dangle. But let's see. Let's look at that carrot from every side. What is going to keep me in a facility? Is it just the money? Because if I go there just for the money, right, there's still going to be expectations that are attached to that one side of that carrot, right? But what about the culture, of the organization? What about the incentives to help me train and grow and become a proficient individual? Where does the nurturing or my well-being or compassion come from? Is this place something or someplace that I can call my own? Is it my family, right? Because we work, most nurses work 36 hours, which is full-time. In the most recent months, nurses have been working 48 to 60 hours. So you're in an environment with people that you 
often spend more time with than your family. So if this environment isn't conducive to growth, it isn't conducive to proficiency, you have quality metrics that are subpar and your patient care outcomes aren't standard and or they don't exceed expectations and it doesn't give you the stamp of excellence, then it has to make you wonder, you know, saying, is the money just enough? Like if I'm here for a temporary contract, which a lot of our travelers, that's why they travel because they don't want to deal with the politics of a, of a particular organization or culture. They would rather travel, go in, do a job and leave. I'll just warn you about that. Like travelers are exceptional people. And, you know, I talk to them the same way that I talk to my staff. But there's a little bit of a disconnect when it comes time to policies and procedures. Right. They don't feel like that they have to be attached to those um, politics. And sometimes our quality metrics are attached to those politics. And so we need people that are going to be engaged 100%. Just because you're not staff here doesn't mean that we don't have to turn our patients. Doesn't mean that, you know, our falls should go up. Doesn't mean that our pressure prevention should not be taking place. It doesn't mean that when you do your charting that you don't have to chart every two hours on your restraints, right? There's still a standard set of rules and regulations that we have to abide by, regardless if we're permanent staff or temporary staff. Well, in that same vein as the doctors, when I was talking about um, financial compensation, that's where some of our discord has come in from organization to organization. We know that with these COVID contracts, a nurse is making, what, $10,000 a week? And if you're someone who's just making your hourly pay with no incentive, no comp, no extra compensation, you can feel a little slighted. That can cause such a rift in our culture because we're like, okay, so you guys have all these high paying, you know, nurses come in. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. I am someone who has been here. I'm dedicated to this organization and I'm not seeing any compensation. Um, I'm not being thanked or, you know, applauded for me coming to work every day, which, you know, this is our job. This is our role. This is our responsibility. And you're not going to be thanked every day, but you should be appreciated, right? You should be appreciated with something more than a pizza party. And so... This is why we're having this conversation about compensation, because, yes, it is a great starter conversation. But we all know that when starter conversations happen, we need to look at what the long term effects are. We need to look at the longer strategy and how the how we're going to sustain over time. Right. That is something that you always, always, always want to have in the back of your foremind. You want to start with the end in mind. So, yes, this is a temporary solution. Where do we go from here, guys? Where, how do we attract high quality 
proficient nurses. How do we just attract nurses that are of a higher caliber, that are engaged, that want to come to work every single day? That is the first bar. We can train them to be proficient. We can train them to be, you know, of higher caliber. We can train them to do a lot of things and be a lot of things. But first off, how do we how do we attract them? How do we end this cycle of I don't want to work for an organization as a staff nurse any longer because the political atmosphere is too much for me, right? The politics of the organization is too much. And I don't always think that, you know, that's an accurate statement. I do think that, you know, each organization has its challenge when it comes to culture, but I think it always, always, always will require some due diligence into looking into your culture. Our C-suite leaders are the top of the top, right? They make the decisions. They are the ones that are responsible for the overall, um, I want to say, feel. I'm going to use that for lack of a better word, feel of the organization, right? When the leaders at the top make themselves visible, they come in and they show that they actually are connected to the staff and they care, trans in a totally different way than a leader that you never see, but you always get rules and regulations from. It's like the absent parent that never comes and says, hey, how's your day going? But um, did your homework get done? Did you take out the trash? Where are you at now on this? What are you doing this? Wait a minute. Stop. Pause. Hey, how you doing? How's everything going in your life? I know that, you know, Right now is a rough time for everyone, and we really do appreciate everything that you're doing. Um, Please keep up the good work. So let's talk about some changes that we have coming down the pipeline. You see how the conversations are different? First, we have to have a conversation of care. Then we can turn around and have a conversation of communication, correction, and course of action. Totally different. So when we talk about compensation, we can't just stop there, right? We have to implement an actionable strategy that is going to lead us into the future. Our future is in attracting quality staff, right? And then when you attract them, where what do you do to invest in them and retain them? So that's our conversation for today. Um, I do appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, Please like, share, subscribe um, to all my channels. I am Donita J. Clark, the Nurse Incubator. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.